Amen. Well, it's good to see everyone here today on this rainy Sunday morning. Uh, a lot of excitement today. Uh, it was really boring here before uh, everyone got here. Normally, uh, we get here, me and Matt and Robert, and we're checking levels and putting in slides and, and doing all these different things. Uh, today, we got here, and we just kind of sat and hung out and talked with each other. So uh, that was kind of fun, but, uh, but it's good to have the power back on. And, um, it's good to be here with you today. Regardless, I told Matt and Robert this when we were talking about, uh, you know, the service today. I said, I mean, it doesn't matter. We're, we're having service because, you know, the Word of God can still be preached whether or not we have power. And uh, the worship of God can still go forth uh, even without power. We have our voices. We have God's Word. We have enough to worship today. And so uh, we say amen to that. Uh, but if you have your Bibles, want to go ahead and pick those up. Turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 8, is where we're going to be today. We're going to be looking at Revelation chapters 8 and 9 today. And uh, we don't have anything on the screens, but uh, my title for the sermon today is Prayers Are Answered and Judgment Has Come. Uh, that title essentially encapsulates what we see happening here in Revelation chapters 8 and 9. That is a, a basic summary of what we see taking place in this section of Revelation. Um, as we as we begin, before we jump into the text, um, I think about as we're reading through Revelation. We saw this a lot last week. And we're going to see more again this week. Um, we we see really a lot of the, the the wrath of God, the judgment of God in this book. And I've heard people say a lot, and I don't know if you've ever heard uh, phrases like this, but I've had people at work tell me this, people I'm around, even people um, in churches, people who claim to be. Uh, Christians saying things like, uh, you know, the God of the Old Testament was really, really mean and wrathful and lots of judgment and anger, unlike the God of the New Testament, who was really uh, nice and sweet and, uh, and comforting um, and all of the good things. But that, that God of the Old Testament was really mean uh, and grouchy and judgmental and killed people. Um, or maybe they won't say that it's different gods. They'll just say that, like, God in the Old Testament— was very different than the way God is in the New Testament, where he is very mean, wrathful, um, judgmental in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, he's nice, he's sweet, he's loving. He sent Jesus to down the cross for because he because he loves us, right? And and we see people, and I hear this fairly often, people will act like God has somehow changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And and what I always want to kind of uh, tell them is that really I don't think you've read your Bible all the way through. Because if you've gotten from the New Testament all the way to the book of Revelation, then you'll know that there is plenty of wrath and judgment and anger stored up and that is coming out in the book of Revelation, right? Wrath is not absent from the New Testament, nor is mercy and grace and love absent from the Old Testament. In fact, we believe in a doctrine that we call the immutability of God. This is a, a describing an attribute of who God is. That God, The word immutable means Unchanging. It means that God is uh, it's the same yesterday, today, forever. The God of the uh, Old Testament, the God who created the earth, who, who brought his people out of Egypt, who, who led them into uh, and out of uh, captivity to Babylon, is the same God that we see in the New Testament, who sent Jesus to die on the cross, who made a way to redeem his people through the blood of his son, and is the same God that we see in the book of Revelation. Again, pouring out his wrath, upon the world. God never changes, nor can he be changed. He is forever and always the same. 
And, and we're thankful for that. This is a, a truth about who God is. And so we commonly hear this misunderstanding uh, about the, the Old Testament versus, versus the New Testament. But I would encourage these people, read the book of Revelation because what we see and, and really what we have seen all throughout this book so far and will continue to see is a lot of Old Testament language. A lot of allusions to the Old Testament, to events that happen in the Old Testament, to prophecies from the Old Testament, uh, constantly throughout the book of Revelation. And while the majority of our passage today that we're going to be studying is about the wrath of God, about God's judgment, uh, there is also, in this passage, hope for God's church in the midst of judgment. And that's the first thing that we see uh, in chapter 8, starting in verses 1 through verse 5. In verse 1, we see this. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in, in heaven for about a half an hour. Now let's stop there for a second. This, this silence in heaven that we see at the beginning of chapter 8, this is the seventh seal has now been opened by the Lamb. And upon opening the seventh seal, this final seal on the scroll that was given to the Lamb, there is silence in heaven, the Bible tells us. Now, this silence has been interpreted in, in multiple ways, uh, and you know what, whatever the case, some people say that uh, the silence is in reference to uh, the, the prayers of the saints that are being lifted up in the following few verses. Some say that it is um, out of awe of, of God's wrath or, or in suspense or, or anticipation of of what is to come. But whatever the case, we, we see this silence in heaven here, and we ought to feel the weight of this silence. The same way you feel the weight of, of a, a silent moment in, uh, in a play or in some sort of speech or in some sort of uh, musical piece when there's a rest. The silence is intended to magnify the intensity, right? The, the silence is, is there for a reason, and I think that's the same thing here at the beginning of Revelation chapter 8, that the silence that we see here should cause us to stop and kind of feel the significance of what is about to come afterwards. And what comes directly after, we're going to jump back in uh, in verse 2. Uh, uh, but point number one of my sermon, since we have no points, uh, is the prayers of the saints are heard. The prayers of the saints are heard. That's what we see in verses 1 through 5 in chapter 8. He says in verse 2 and following, Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with the fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder and rumblings and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Here at the, at the beginning of chapter 8 in Revelation, John, I think, intentionally draws our attention back to chapter 6. He intentionally draws our attention back to chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, if you want to turn back there with me. You recall from last week, this is the, the part where, uh, where the fifth seal was broken on the scroll. The fifth seal was broken. And what happened at the, at the fifth seal? Chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witnesses that they 
bore. So we see when the fifth seal is broken, we see the, the saints that had been martyred for the faith, that had been killed for proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And in the midst of this, what also we see from these saints is we see a prayer coming out from these souls of the saints who had been killed. In verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? We see here the, the souls of the saints crying out to the Lord, praying to God, asking him, how long, O Lord, will you allow this to happen? How long before justice comes? And we, it's fascinating to me that we, when we see this text in, in chapter 8, I think we ought to be drawn back to that and see that, that the prayer of these saints that is going up to the Lord is being heard. Their appeal to God for justice, their appeal to God to avenge them, to, to judge those who have done evil, is not met on deaf ears. It does not fall on deaf ears, but rather rises up to God and the Lord hears their prayer. And in fact, the Lord answers their prayer. And we see the answer to this exact prayer given in the following sections of our text today. We see, and this is point number two, that in answer to the prayer, the judgment is severe. In verses 6 through 12 of chapter 8, we read this. Now the seven angels who had seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown down upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the, and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. We remember from last week, as we saw the seals being opened, the six of the seven seals being opened. We did see some very serious judgments, some very serious and, and really kind of sad images that were given to us in last week's text. But in addition to those judgments, those, uh, the wrath of God that we saw last week, we also saw that there were uh, seals that were broken that brought visions of hope and goodness and, uh, and the potential for joy for those who were suffering. That was the aspect, that was the vision that John was seeing. But that is not so with the seven trumpets that we are now looking at in our text today. In fact, with these trumpets, with these judgments, comes only judgment, judgment, and more judgment, with a sign of wrath at the end of it. We see nothing but judgment and wrath coming in our text today. And honestly, apart from what we see at the very beginning, that, uh, that for those who are in Christ there is hope, for those who are suffering, for those who are in pain, torment, along with these trumpets comes no offer of hope, but only wrath, only 
judgment is coming for them. As we look and we see these first four trumpets are blown, there is severe, severe damage that is done, severe torment that has come to the earth and pain and suffering. We see that, uh, that a third of the earth was burned up, was destroyed. We see that a third of the seas were turned to blood, right? We see uh, that a third of all the fresh water, the springs and the rivers uh, were, were poisoned, were, were made unsuitable to take in from the, from the wormwood. And then we see forth that finally the light was even affected, that light has gone out from in the world because of these four judgments. And I can't even imagine the, just the, the horror of the picture that's being described here of these things that are going on on the earth. I think about the, the water, having no fresh water uh, to drink, or at least a third of the fresh water being poisoned. This wormwood that's being described is, uh, is a, a type of like root that would, that would poison water. It made it very bitter and would make you sick if you drank it and potentially kill you. That a third of the fresh water was, was no good. Not only that, but and, and what I think probably to be the most dramatic of these was that a third of the light had gone out. That there was darkness now in the earth. There was less light. You know, there's been a lot of like studies and, and psychological research done uh, on the effects of light deprivation from human beings and the negative effects that it has. Even in the winter months, right, we know that uh, because there's less sunlight, people are, are exposed to the light, the sun uh, less they experience what's called seasonal affective disorder, right? That, that, uh, that depression and anxiety all rise whenever people are deprived of, of sunlight, whenever there's less light or fewer hours in the day. Like, we, we recognize this. We even feel like when there's a dark, gloomy day, there's just something about it that just, I mean, kind of just wants to get us down, right? And, and it's different from a, a, when you walk outside and you see the sun shining and the birds chirping. But here we see that, that that became the new normal after these judgments, that there was darkness, that a third of the light, that's no small amount, a third of the light had gone out in both the day and the night, so that there was darkness covering all of the earth. We see that the second angel, uh, that he was, there was, or when the second angel blew his trumpet, that a third of the sea was turned to blood. Isn't this so reminiscent of what we see in the book of Exodus, the, the Red Sea turning into blood, the, the Nile River turning into blood. This is, is like so reminiscent of these Old Testament plagues that we see in the book of Exodus and, and throughout. This is a, a grave, a very dark day that has been described here in just these first four trumpets that were blown. Like, if we were to stop here, we would say, wow, that is really, really sad. But the fact of the matter is that it doesn't stop here. In fact, things get worse. And that's what we see. And point number three is that things get worse. In verses, uh, chapter 8, verse 13 uh, and following, but I want to look especially at chapter 8, verse 13. John says this, Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice, as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. We see at the end of chapter eight here in verse 13, the angel has come and said, you think things are bad now? 
things are only going to get worse. In fact, three woes are pronounced, one for each of the next three trumpets that are about to be blown, indicating that things are about to get worse. I think about Han and Luke and Leia and Chewie on the Death Star when they're in that trash compactor, and, and uh, one of them says, well, things couldn't get any worse, and then they hear a loud, ominous noise, and Han Solo says, it's worse. <laughs> like, that's where we are in this point in the text, that just when you think things are at their darkest, their worst, this angel comes along to say, things are going to get worse, and pronounces three woes upon the next three trumpets that are going to be blown. And we look at that, and starting in verse 1 of chapter 9, and the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened, and with the smoke from the, and with the, smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who, dwell, who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of scorpion when it stings. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Verse 7. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, his name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who ride them. They wore breastplates, the color of fire and sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of, and by means of them they wound. There is no doubt, no doubt, that what we have just seen in chapter 9 is far worse than what we saw in chapter 8. Chapter 8 was bad. But now as we open up chapter 9, this scene of a great bottomless pit, a shaft full of, of what is called locusts in here, but, but what I believe the text would have us see as demonic forces, evil forces, have now been unleashed into the world. 
unleashed to go and reign and to torment and to cause suffering and pain to the people on earth. The thing about this section of scripture is that it necessitates a high view of the sovereignty of God, a view of God's sovereignty that he sees him sovereign even over evil. I said this last week several times, but honestly, what we see throughout the book of Revelation is the sovereignty of God as one of the most central aspects of this book. If you read through the book of Revelation and you don't see the sovereignty of God or see it in an even higher light than you did before, then I do think you've missed the book of Revelation. If after we're done preaching it, you guys don't see God as more sovereign and more in control, more uh, over all things, controlling all things, ordaining all things, then I think you've missed it. And we failed as preachers of God's word. Because the fact of the matter is that what we see in this section of scripture is we see God decreeing judgment in the form of demonic forces in the world. God's sovereignty is so extensive that he ordained evil demonic forces as an instrument for judging the world. Remember where this whole scene is taking place. I said this last week. Everything from, from chapter 6 going forward flows out of what we saw in chapters 4 and 5. What happened in chapters 4 and 5? We, we're given the throne room picture, right? Picture of God on his throne and Jesus Christ, the lamb who was slain, who was now opening the scroll, decreeing judgment on the earth. This is all coming from the throne room of God. These decrees, the decrees these judgments... All of them are flowing from the throne room of God, demonstrating that God in his sovereignty is so great that he is even sovereign over wicked, evil, demonic forces. They are not outside of his control. Even evil, demonic forces are part of God's sovereign control. And this is not the only time we see this. This isn't the first time God has used wicked instruments for his Purposes, and, and I'll show you an example of this in the Old Testament in the book of Habakkuk. And I know like some people pronounce it Habakkuk. Uh, some people pronounce it Habakkuk. Some people don't try to pronounce it. I pronounce it Habakkuk. That's how I uh, heard it pronounced when I was growing up in school. So we are going to be reading from the book of Habakkuk uh, in the first chapter. Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is Habakkuk's lament, his, his complaint, if you will, to the Lord in the verse four, first four verses of chapter one. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry, for cry to you violence and you will not say, why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous so justice goes forth perverted. This is Habakkuk's lament to the Lord about what he sees taking place in Israel at this time. He looks over, this is the prophet of God, looking over the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, seeing their wickedness, seeing uh, the wickedness allowed to prosper, coming and saying to the Lord, there is no justice right now. Lord, do justice. Do right by, by your holiness and your justice. How long will you allow this to stand? This sounds actually very similar to what we see from the prayer of the saints, right? In chapter 6 of Revelation. When they say, how long, O Lord, will 
will you allow this to continue? When will you avenge our blood? We see Habakkuk saying the same thing. How long, O Lord? And the Lord answers. The Lord answers. The Lord says this to him. I'm going to read verses, uh, verses 5 and 6 uh, of Habakkuk. This is the Lord's response to Habakkuk. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the, through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. God has just declared to Habakkuk, hey, I'm going to do something about it. I am doing something about it. I am raising up for myself a, a people to handle the Israelites. He says, I'm doing a work in your day. Behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans are, are the enemies of Israel. They are a wicked people. They are idol worshipers. They are pagans. They are a wicked and, and evil nation that God has just declared, I am raising them up in order to judge my people by the Chaldeans. And Habakkuk is kind of taken aback by this and, and, and seems to cry to the Lord, that's, that's unjust. How can you judge the people of God, your people, with this wicked nation? But the fact of the matter is that God did. God chose in Habakkuk and God does in Revelation the same thing where he has chosen to use wicked, evil forces in the world to judge the world. He did the same thing to his people, the nation of Israel, by raising up the Chaldeans to, to come and to conquer them. He used evil forces as his means of retribution, demonstrating for us that God is not only like seeing evil happen and then going, oh, well, now I've got to like do something with it since it's happened. Oops. But I can, I can do something with it. No. God says, I am raising up the Chaldeans. In Revelation chapter 9, what does he say about uh, the, the angels that were released? In verse 14, he says, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And then in verse 15, he says, So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Who were they prepared by? They were prepared by God for judgment. All of this, every ounce of this judgment that we see is a part of the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God is what we see. And yet, there is, there is hope for us as believers in the midst of this chapter. Notice uh, the hope that's in the middle of this section in verse 4. Chapter 9, verse 4, what does he say? Speaking of the demons, he says, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. In other words, the people of God who had been sealed with the, the name of the Lamb on their foreheads, who for, for us that have been sealed by the Holy Spirit to Christ, they are the only ones that these demons are told you are not allowed to. To harm them. You're not allowed to touch them. Protection is given to believers. That we don't have to fear evil demonic forces in the world. They can't harm us. That is what is declared in this passage. Hope for believers. Hope for those who are sealed by the Holy Spirit 
even in the midst of destruction, even in the midst of, midst of evil demonic forces in the world. And let me say, like, whether or not this is a future event or right now, we can, we can debate that. But regardless, we do know that even in the world today, there are demonic forces at work. There is spiritual warfare that is being waged around us. And we, as followers of Christ, have hope even in the midst of that. By the Holy Spirit, we've been given power over these things. And it is our responsibility to tell that to the world. That there is hope even in the midst of the darkest of times. But the question has to be asked, why were these people saved from the wrath of God? Those who were sealed. Why were they saved from the wrath of God? Was it because that they were uh, not deserving of God's wrath? No. No, that's obviously not the answer. Romans uh, chapter 3 clearly tells us that all of sin falls short of the glory of God. And Romans goes on to tell us that the wages of that is sin, is God's, or, uh, is death. It is God's wrath, the due punishment for all who live on the earth. So why were those who were sealed spared from God's wrath? Did God just not pour his wrath out for those people? And, and I hope you're already there with the answer if you, if you are a member here, Redeemer. But the answer is that the wrath of God that was due these people who are sealed with Christ was poured out on Christ on the cross. God did not just say, well, no wrath for their, for their sins. No, God poured his wrath upon Jesus Christ for their sins. For you and I, if we have trusted in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, if we are sealed by the Holy Spirit with him in his death, burial, and resurrection, then we have no need to fear God's wrath in any form, in demonic forces, in death itself. We have no need to fear the wrath of God for Christ born on our behalf. We rejoice in this. We see the hope in this. That even though the people who, who are lost in this passage have no hope, for those who would put their faith and trust in Christ, there is hope. Mm -hmm. There is security. There is safety. There is peace from the wrath of God. And yet even in the midst of all of this, everything going on around them, all of the, the wrath of God that is being poured out, the judgments that are being decreed, we still see that blindness Remains. That's point number four. Blindness remains. At the very end of chapter 9, verses 20 and 21, we see this. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their theft. We see that even in the midst of all that we see, the wrath of God being poured out, demonic forces being allowed to reign terror over the world, there are still those who don't repent. Who rather than having their hearts softened and seeing the reality of the wrath of God that is due them and repent, their hearts are hardened. Much like Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, who, who once the, the plagues had been poured out upon the people of Egypt, did Pharaoh soften his heart? Was Pharaoh uh, just come to a, a place of repentance? No, in fact, the opposite was true, that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. His heart was hardened. 
He refused to give up his ways. He refused to give up his power, but rather his heart was hardened and suffering when God's wrath was due him, as it is due everyone who hardens their heart to the truth of the gospel. And the reality is that, that there are still going to be people, no matter what happens in the world today, that are going to reject Christ and, and forsake worshiping the one true God, the creator, for worship of demons or of graven images or of themselves. That's what we see here. This lack of repentance that is so so devastating. This is the point where we come and we hear these people and we say, for them there is no hope. Those who would refuse to repent. It, re it reminds us of the, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Who, who the rich man says, go send Lazarus to go tell my family so that they might not end up in this place. And what's the response? Even if someone would come back from the dead, they would not believe. Yeah. They would not believe. No matter what some people see in the world today, no matter what truth is revealed to them, they still harden their hearts and refuse to believe. And theirs is the wrath of God. That is what is due them. So as we close, I, I, uh, I told this story to Matt and, uh, and Ian earlier. But yesterday I went out yard sailing. I've been in, uh, kind of taking advantage of Kaylee and, and Eli being out of the house here in Pennsylvania for the week. And... So I got up early and, and pleasured myself to a little yard sale on Saturday morning. It's one of my favorite Saturday morning pastimes. And I got this awesome like Frisbee type thing. It's called a, an Arobi disc is what it's called. And it's like apparently sets some sort of record for the longest throw at some point. I mean, the package looks pretty old, so it could have been passed by now. But I got this, this ring, this disc at a yard sale uh, for a couple bucks and, uh, and I wanted to give it a shot. So I come out here to the church yard as I got here yesterday to study and um, I got out my car, got my disc and, and like launched it out into the field, right? And was pretty disappointed with the results. The, it didn't go nearly as far as I was hoping, just kind of faded off to the left, petered out. And so I was kind of bummed out and I walk out there to go get it, grab it, pick it up. And without, uh, without even thinking about it, I just go and like flick it up towards my car and I'm telling you, whatever I did the second time worked because this thing soared. I mean, I stood there and it was one of those moments where there's nothing I can do and just stand there and go, oh crap, oh crap, oh crap. Because this thing just soared right over my car, right over the road and nailed the neighbor's uh, Ford Escape right in the back. I mean, just nailed the back hatch of this uh, Ford Escape. And oh my gosh, as humiliated. Here I am, 27 year old man, playing with my Frisbee and have to go now and tell the neighbors, uh, hey, like, I just hit your car with my Frisbee. So, so I like make the walk of shame over there, pick up my Frisbee, like things look okay in the car. I didn't see any damage or anything, but I went ahead up to the door and I knocked on the guy's door and, and the guy answers the door and, and I'm like, hey, uh, my name's Denton. I actually am a pastor across the street and I just hit your car with my Frisbee. Like, I explained to him, you know, went way better than I was expecting, you know, tried to kind of make a joke, but didn't really go well. But, but I explained to the guy what happened, and that I didn't see any damage, and the dude was super understanding. He was just way cool about it. He was like, man, that's totally fine. That little ring isn't going to do any damage to my car. Like, ah, don't worry about it at all. You know, just super cool, super chill. And I was like, oh, man, thank you. All right. Thank goodness. Um, but, but things were good because he was just really gracious and really nice and, and honestly just really understanding about the whole thing. But the thing is, 
that when, when a lot of people think about the wrath of God, that is do them for their sin, they think this is going to be the kind of interaction that they're going to have with God. They think they're going to come to God like some kid that hit uh, uh, his car with a Frisbee, and he's just going to be like, yeah, no problem, like, just a Frisbee, didn't hurt anything, I'm not that worried about it. I will just pretend like it never happened, you know? But the reality is that is not the way that things are going to go on the Day of Judgment. For one thing, that is a gross misunderstanding of our sin and, and the depravity of man and the significance, the punishment that is due us for our sin, that is totally underestimating how wicked we are, for one, but also we, we totally underestimate the holiness and justice of God when we consider the wrath that is due for our sin. We totally underestimate it. We, we've stated this before, but the wrath of God that is due sin is proportionate not to how bad we think our sin was, but how holy the God we sinned against was. That is because he is perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, perfectly just, an eternal, perfect, expansive punishment is due us for our sin. We've sinned against an eternal God, a holy God. We deserve eternal damnation. The wrath of God as described in Revelation is what we deserve. This is how people think that it's going to go with God at judgment. But that is simply not the case. Unless we stand before judgment, sealed with Christ by the Holy Spirit, there is no hope for us. There is no more understanding. There is no mercy to be had apart from Christ. On that day, no one will be able to argue with God about their sinfulness or about what they deserve, but theirs will be only wrath. Only wrath to come. Like I said last week, as of now, the doors to Noah's Ark are still open. Salvation is still available from the coming wrath of God, but there is coming a day when that will not be true. The doors will be shut. Mercy will no longer be available. It will be over. And unless you are in Christ, you will face God's wrath. I, I just have two points of application as we close. The first is that this understanding of God's wrath should lead us to an appropriate, a proper fear of the holy God. A proper fear of God should be a response to this text. When we look at the wrath of God revealed in Revelation 8 and 9, it should lead us to a healthy fear of the Lord. And it should lead us to proper worship in response to a fear of God. And the second thing is that we, if we are in Christ, if we are his children, we can trust that our prayers do not fall on deaf ears. We can trust that we are protected, that we are secure in Christ Jesus, that the devil has no hold over us, no power over us, that demonic forces in the world cannot harm us, but that we are safe in Christ Jesus, safe and dwelt with the Holy Spirit, sealed with Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much, Lord, for the book of Revelation. I thank you for the comfort that it is to, uh, to the church, especially the church in suffering, Lord, but even for us today, though we may not be facing persecution or, or, or suffering the way churches across the world are, Lord, we can still see the encouragement that you would have for us here 